If you've been in education for any length of time, you've probably heard the term executive functioning. But what exactly does that mean? A lot of times that term can seem all-encompassing and covers so many sub-skills. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Karen all about executive functioning and how we can make sure that we set our students on a path for success. She talks about the importance of working from a team approach, making sure that students are involved and practice their self-advocacy skills, and how we can make our instruction meaningful when we're talking about executive functioning and social skills. This was an excellent conversation, and I look forward to hearing even more in the future from Dr. Karen. Welcome back to the Science of Special Education podcast. I have for us today, Dr. Karen. She's going to be talking a little bit about executive functioning. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself to get us started? Great. Um, thank you so much for having me on here. So to give you a little bit of background about me. So I am a speech pathologist. I started practicing back in 2004. And during that time, I was also working on my doctorate in special ed and my director of special ed credential. So I stayed in the school systems for about 14 years. During that time, I was doing all kinds of on the side type of things, adjunct worked at universities. And then obviously for my director of special ed credential, I was doing different administrative leadership projects while I was in the schools. And towards the end, I was, you know, kind of considering what I wanted to do next steps for my career once I actually got my doctorate. So I was thinking about special ed administration. Um, that was always something that was of interest to me. I was also looking into higher ed because I really loved teaching. I had a lot of information that I wanted to share with people. And so I was kind of dabbling in a bunch of different different directions, also considering private practice as, a, as an SLP. And what I ended up doing was that I had a lot of different um, frameworks that I'd created when I was actually working in the schools relating to um, things like language, literacy, executive functioning, some of the things that I'll talk about today. And what I ended up doing was put, writing a course. Uh, my first course was for SLPs. And um, what that was, was I showed therapists a framework that helps to build the language skills that kids need for reading and writing that can kind of support curriculums, uh, an already robust reading curriculum. And so that was really the first course that I put out. And so that really took off. And so I ended up just um, starting to pursue the self-employment route. Eventually that grew and I left the school systems in 2018 and have been running the business full time doing professional development for clinicians. So started with speech pathologists, but as I started to do that work, I... I wanted to use my leadership training that I got during my doctoral program and my um, director of special ed credential, but also started to realize that some of the problems that I wanted to tackle were way bigger, and I really needed to consider the whole special ed team. And with the work with, with language therapy, it really, when you consider executive functioning and what kids actually need across the day, um, I was helping therapists with a very specific problem that they needed to do when they had a student in front of them or a group of students. But really, if you want kids to be successful, you have to consider the big picture and the whole team to make sure that there's support across the day. Um, you know, working with the, 
the classroom teacher, the special ed teacher, the other people on the IEP team, like the psychologist, the social worker, the counselor, the paraprofessionals, the parents, the students themselves. Yeah. So it's really, you know, everybody plays a unique role in the process. And when you think about executive functioning, which I know we'll define in a minute, it's really something that needs to be embedded into everything uh, proactively and everybody has a unique angle. And so um, really what I'm doing now is still doing the literacy stuff, but also focusing on leadership and helping teams work together effectively. But one of the specific initiatives that I'm doing under that whole leadership initiative is getting executive functioning programming you know, into the schools, into the teams, giving the clinicians the information that they need in order to train the teams and starting to talk to the leadership just to kind of help them figure out what their staff need to help students be successful. Right. Well, I think that's what's so interesting about executive functioning and what makes it unique is because it really is kind of this all encompassing thing, right? It's a little different yeah. than like math or social studies. It really comes across right. the entire day. So you really need the whole team. When you yep. think about executive functioning, what exactly is that? We hear that term a lot, but what is it? <laughs> so it's it's really a, there's this huge umbrella and this whole cluster of skills that fit under that, which then impacts all these other skills, like you just mentioned, math, language, reading, and, and language fits into it as well. But, but really it's the skills that allow us to self-regulate and engage in goal-directed behavior. If you Google executive functioning, that's probably what you're going to find. But some of the things that fit in, into that are being able to see yourself and envision your end goal and actually physically see it, like have a picture in your head of that and then figure out what steps you need to do in order to get there, but also see yourself doing those steps and be able to visualize those steps and put language to those steps as you're visualizing it. So you need to pair those two things together so that you can plan. Um, and then what that allows you to do, which also fits under executive functioning is to be able to adapt and shift as you're carrying out that plan to see, you know, process the incoming information that you have. So you know when to change and adapt to be able to evaluate your plan to figure out if it's working, if you maybe need to adjust what your plan was. Um, so the self-evaluation and self-reflection piece is really critical. Um, and then being able to process that incoming information. So that processing and working memory and all of that, just being able to, again, hold information in your head and use it, whether it's auditory or visual or tactile, all of that is something that we think about when we think about planning. So, you know, you think, oh, you're going to go upstairs and brush your teeth. There's steps to doing that. But also it really has a huge impact in social situations because you're always having to read the room and look around at all this incoming information at the same time and figure out what to pay attention to and then how to adjust your behaviors. So a lot of times we hear like in the speech pathology world, we call it pragmatic language or social skills, but really what it is is executive functioning applied to social situations because you need to be able to figure out, okay, what's going on? What's everybody doing? What should I be doing? Um, you know, this, somebody said something to me, how do I react? How do I evaluate how they responded to what I said and all of those things. So it's just, again, lots of incoming information. And that's why we see 
kids who, you know, have conditions that impact executive functioning like ADHD or autism, while we see them struggling with, you know, social skills, as I'm kind of putting that in big air quotes, but really a lot of times it ties back to executive functioning. And just, you know, that's what allows you to kind of understand how your behavior is impacting other people, um, getting you to your end outcome, and also how others are perceiving you and being able to take the perspective of someone else and think about like, what might they be thinking and that. And then the other thing is what's kind of embedded into all of this, which allows you to be successful with it is being able to have the actual internal dialogue and use language in your head and that self-talk to talk yourself through something that has to be happening as well. And that's what a lot of people don't realize is that kids who are struggling with executive functioning aren't, they don't have that internal dialogue. This is kind of a silly example, but, and again, you have to be very careful with, you know, following different social media pages because the information is not always accurate, but some of the memes out there are just pretty funny. Like there was one that was floating around Twitter or Instagram where somebody said, other people have internal dialogue. Is that a thing? Just that, that some people, they don't do that. And that's, again, that's your executive functioning. And it was just, you know, it's kind of interesting um, how, again, you have to teach that if that's not there. Yeah. So that is huge. Because you know, you think about you're going to walk in, you're, you're thinking about what you need to do in the morning. You're you're thinking, okay, first I need to get up and I need to get dressed and I need to um, make my coffee. And then, oh, wait, oh, this, you know, whoops, my, my dog needs to go out. Oh, I need to go over here. And you're talking to yourself while you're doing that. Um, and so that dialogue needs to be happening in order for you to be able to do that. I know it wasn't not long ago, maybe just a couple of years ago where I found out that some people don't have that. And I was completely yeah. shocked. I was like, that's yeah. how I spend all my day talking to myself internally. Oh my but there are people who don't have that skill or haven't, you know, haven't developed that. So yeah, yeah. definitely. And I think that, um, you know, executive functioning really affects no matter, you know, all the populations that listeners out there might be working with it's not a disability specific and it really not even special education specific because we have there's a lot of higher order thinking skills that some of our I mean I'm thinking about my son who just turned 18 you know he still needs to work on some of these skills and probably will continue to develop those as he goes off on his own and has to make more choices so it's really something that and even as adults that we can continue to work on as well oh yeah absolutely a lot in terms of academics and that we can, um, you know, see the benefits of having some of these organization skills when we're talking about academics. And you mentioned social skills. And I'm just wondering about, um, you know, what's the implication on, you know, mental health? That's a big, you know, issue and topic that comes across for our students. You know, do these play a role in a student's mental health as well? Yeah, Absolutely. And so I want to just make a like a statement here that um, I have said a lot and there's there's there are times when kids are going to traditional talk therapy or counseling and they're still experiencing anxiety. So I just want to make it clear I'm not making a blanket statement that talk therapy is not good. Like there are legitimate issues where you do need to go to therapy. So I just want to, you know, be, be clear about that. But there are many situations when going and talking to someone about it isn't going to be enough to address the executive functioning issues because it needs to be addressed in context. So the therapy aspect, whether it is more cognitive focused or whether it is more 
emotional and, and, you know, working on trauma and past issues for a lot of people, that is an important component. And that actually can be a part of what you would do for executive functioning, but it's not going to be enough to address it. You need to have things embedded across the day in order for that to, in order for it to be effective. And so let me just kind of, to kind of explain why this has such an impact on anxiety and mental health. Um, people who have a hard time with executive functioning get into this self-fulfilling prophecy and this negativity cycle. Because if you think about it, think about a situation that's totally unfamiliar for you. You don't know what to expect. You're going to feel nervous about that. That is a normal human emotion. It's totally reasonable. But now think about if you couldn't, if you didn't know how to see, like envision what is going to happen and you have no context for it, you can't like feel yourself being successful. You can't think about the steps that you need to take. There's no sense of planning and feeling prepared. You're going to feel even more anxious. So people who struggle with executive functioning are even more likely to be anxious about unfamiliar situations. And so that is one part of it. And then when they go into those unfamiliar situations, they're not prepared and they don't have a good experience. So now they've had a negative experience in that situation because they weren't prepared. So what happens is that they start to avoid situations. And when we think about anxiety, working through your comfort zone, the way that you can start to feel yourself being successful and have an image in your head of yourself succeeding and have a positive self-image about something is that you go through the uncomfortable phase, you experience success, and now you're starting to have evidence that you can do something. And you're also starting to build skills that are going to help you be successful in that situation and feel more competent. And that's how you expand that comfort zone. So if you are avoiding situations that are going to make you feel successful, you're literally avoiding the thing that's going to make you feel better. And it comes, it gets into this whole negativity cycle. And what a lot of people do is say, oh, they're anxious. We should avoid it. Well, that's the exact opposite of what you should be doing. What, what we should be doing is providing some structure and assistance and scaffolding so that, yes, we are providing support, but we're guiding someone through that. So it's not, you know, crippling anxiety, but it's manageable. It's still going to feel uncomfortable, but we can work through that feeling and get to the other side. And so that's why uh, it's, executive functioning is really important in building that resiliency because you start to learn to work through those those learning curves it's in it's if you go the other direction and you start to avoid and just sort of retreat to things that are comfortable then it, it actually makes it worse and I think that that's what where a lot of times people kind of get stuck and where it can get kind of hard and actually make you feel less resilient when you're doing you know when you're doing that avoidance so Talk therapy and planning and working with someone to kind of plan out is is good. That is a component of it, but then you actually need to go do the thing. <laughs> yeah, I um, I'm thinking about uh, you know, from my own days teaching, and I had um, students in a self-contained classroom, and we were working towards you know getting them back into the general education classroom, and you know a lot of that depended on when they went into that classroom for the first time, if they had that success, right? If they had yeah. that little, little bit of success, if they didn't, it wouldn't be too long before they were saying, well, the student can't stay here, right? They're not, they're not yeah. you know, behaving. They're not, you know, so how does that executive functioning 
play into, you know, keeping kids engaged, keeping them motivated in that, in the classroom? So in the classroom, when you, I mean, I think anytime you're going to have an unfamiliar situation, any way that you can front load and prepare is going to be great, especially if you can do it physically and actually go there in a maybe more of a, a structured situation. A, a good example of what a lot of schools do is that, you know, the kids that are coming over to the junior high next year get to come do a visit. You might have to do that more often for kids who are who need some work with executive functioning. And a lot of times you might think, well, I already went through this with them. They just need might need a lot more. Things that seem to come a lot easier for other kids, they might need more, more experiences to kind of build up that confidence. So that's something that's really important there. When it comes to getting them into the classroom, what we also want to be be mindful of when we're thinking about actual supports is that any way that we can provide structure about what the expectations are is going to be key. And then also we, as teachers or anybody who's in there providing support, paraprofessionals can be a huge asset here as well. Or if you have a special ed teacher who's co-teaching or you know, whoever's in the classroom supporting kids. I know that the roles can be, you know, varying there depending on the setup. But when you put those supports in place, a lot of teachers have that already. They might have the classroom rules, the steps, all of those things. Kids who need additional support just might need more. And so what you kind of want to do is just sort of do this audit of what's there. And if you have kids who are still struggling, you kind of have to play detective and see what point they're getting stuck. Because a lot of times when something has multiple steps, it seems really obvious to us what, what we should be doing, but it's not as obvious to them. Um, so I, I recommend that people kind of notice where, where they're getting stuck, where you're seeing behaviors, where they're seeming anxious or showing resistance and see if there's something in there where they might be getting stuck on a step that seems really obvious to you. Um, us really like, and this is, well, it happens a lot with writing, you know, their writing tends to be very difficult, um, requires a lot of executive functioning. I mean, reading comprehension is obviously something as well, but sometimes just getting your stuff organized can be difficult as well. So I think that you kind of have to understand what your rules and your expectations are and how you're managing that class and see what you might need to do above and beyond to make it even more obvious and provide more structure for them. So they might need um, you know, some additional visuals or some additional steps spelled out for them. Or um, you know, again, they might need a little bit more practice with some of those routines. So that would be a place I would start with people. Um, and then also they might need somebody to kind of come back around and give them a little bit of support and, and assistance throughout those processes. So that would be where I would start with people if they are like, okay, we got them in the classroom, but, but we're still, you know, we're still having a hard time with the routines. Yeah. Well, and especially as the students get older and they're switching classes more and more right now, yeah. they have to learn a new expectations and new routines seven, eight times yeah. a day, right? Mm -hmm. They have to put those mm -hmm. into practice for every adult they're coming in contact with, every classroom they're coming in contact with, which I yep. think goes back to your point about having 
that team approach, right. And having, you know, that consistency throughout the day and having, um, a team who's all on the same page. So how do you get everybody to work together? You have a kid that, you know, is struggling with some of these executive functioning skills. They're interacting with multiple adults. How do we get them all to work together to support the student? That is, uh, that is a very good question. Um, I think that it it really helps if there is someone who's kind of the designated person who is responsible for executive functioning, even though everybody's responsible for doing something, but there, it would be, it would be helpful for there to be a designated person who kind of goes around and manages the situation and you know, I have my thoughts on who that could be. I know that, you know, as a speech pathologist, that often fell under, could fall under our scope just because of our, you know, our background in language. There's, you know, huge, a lot of, a lot of exec, uh, speech pathologists specialize in that. So that could make sense for the speech pathologist to be that person, but it doesn't have to be them. I've, I know some social workers and psychologists or counselors who are great with this kind of things. I had some special ed teachers that I worked with who were amazing at this. So I think all of those people, you could make a case for them to be that person. They just need to make sure that they have the background and the training to be able to do it so that they can go around and understand what needs to be in place. And so that's why when I'm thinking about working with clinicians, I'm like, hey, you know, if it's not being done on your team, you can take initiative and try to get start to get people on board. And then from the administration, the administrative side, I think that there just needs to be that support from them so that they can make sure that everybody knows how to communicate together and, you know, get the team on board. I think you can get really creative with your communication styles. Like, I think that you don't always necessarily have to have a face-to-face meeting. If you can have some kind of a system where, you know, one person is creating a plan Um, there's clear accommodations that need to be in place and it's posted somewhere where everyone can see and check in and communicate, that can be really helpful. But having that designated person can be, that can be a a good start. Um, And and the thing is, is that you do want to make sure that you have the right accommodations in place. Um, You do want to make sure that people understand the visuals and the, you know, what, whatever systems need to be in place. But also what you really want to do is make sure that you're uh, including the student in these conversations so that they can self-advocate because in life, you are going to have to go through a lot of different situations and things are going to be different. It's actually good for them to have to go through all of those different classes and navigate that And so them understanding what they need and what their accommodations are, that's where you can also get the student involved so that they can start asking for those things if they need it. So that's another piece as well, is that that student can be part of that team. Um, The adults are still the ones that are, you know, guiding that, but the student can start to learn to self-advocate as well. Yeah. So two things that you mentioned there that I just want to touch on, because I thought they were really important. And the first was having that dedicated person, but you mentioned that that person has the background and the training in Mm -hmm. executive functioning. And I think that's really important from what I have, you know, interacted with and seen a lot of the times executive functioning is just thrown out there. Oh, the student has problems with executive functioning. Give them a graphic organizer. Right. 
I don't see a lot of people really digging into, you know, what exactly are the sub skills that they're missing? How can we break those down? What's the accommodation that actually fits with their weakness rather than just saying they need a planner or they need, you know, some sort of organizer. Um, So I think that that's really important. What kind of out there or is there any kind of an evaluation that a team could give? How do people determine what exactly a student might need to work on? So there are some uh, some tools that are that are pretty good. Like there's the McCloskey is a pretty good. I can I can link to that one or I can share that. That's that's one of them that's pretty decent. Um, the problem with something like executive functioning is that you really kind of need a portfolio approach to looking at it. There are a lot of the attention rating scales get into it somewhat for for things like ADHD, but it's it's one of those things where it it's really hard for the student to show what they know how to do when you just take this one evaluation. So it is really hard to get a gauge on it. But if you have a student who is consistently, um, you know, refusing things, avoiding, avoiding things that they don't like to do, they're missing assignments, they are not turning in their writing, you know, all of those types of things then then that those are kind of the red flags. But yeah, there are certain rating scales that you can use to assess. But what you can also do, because with executive functioning, it is so internal, it is really hard to measure. And so a lot of times people are focused more on what's going on externally. They'll just say, oh, the student's really uh, impulsive or they're defiant or whatever. Um, So yes, you do want to have some kind of a rating scale, but you can also kind of pair it to, all right, we do know that there are some specific goals that we want this student to do in order to be successful. And you can tie it to that. Um, You do want to make sure that you're focusing on those internal skills and teaching them how to talk themselves through those situations. But you also want to figure out what are those tasks that they need to do. And then like, and then what are the steps in that task? Um, what you know what uh does success look like in that situation and how are we going to measure it and hold the student accountable so this could be things like again all the steps in the writing process you know maybe we're just looking at their ability to complete that whole task like complete the writing rubric or something like that again kind of pairing it to something specific or maybe we want to look at are they able to use that strategy are they able to actually use do all the steps in the strategy and can we gradually fade the prompts that they need in order to do it? Um, are they, what is their homework completion like? And can we look at that? Um, what's our goal as far as, you know, how much, like what percentage of their assignments they're doing and what accountability measures do we need to place in order for them to be in, in put in place in order to be successful? So it's almost like you're kind of mixing it in with those things, those outcomes that you want to see. Yeah. At the same time. So, you know, I think we always want to tie it back to it's not about success isn't necessarily measured by they improved on this rating scale. The rating scale gives us a little bit of information about what we might need to work on, but it's not the end goal. The end goal is to help the student be successful. And that's actually something that comes up a lot in the speech and language world because this last year, um, kind of an un. I wouldn't say totally unrelated topic, but there's some parallels here where they, the CDC 
just re did some revisions on the language developmental milestones. And a lot of people were very concerned because of, you know, they were based on neurotypical guidelines and people who aren't neurotypical don't necessarily follow that neuro, that developmental progression and all of those things. And my response to that was, the you know, whether these milestones are appropriate to think about for this particular person or um, whether or not this person is going to follow that progression is kind of irrelevant. What we want to do is figure out, okay, you know, do we need to look at something right here? And is there a red flag here? And what does success look like? So the rating scale is kind of like, all right, we need to work on this. But then you still look at something very functional for what your actual actual goal is. So, yeah. you know, does that make sense? Where it's It like does. And I think that's why that having that one person who's kind of that dedicated person is so important because they can look at it holistically, right? Like I know as a teacher, when I'm filling out a rating scale, I'm looking at that one small snippet of, of the child's day, yeah. right? In my classroom. But having that one person who's looking at it from more of a holistic lens, how, you know, throughout their whole day, I think really would help the team pinpoint what's the most important goals, right? It might not, yeah. you know, if it's, if, if, if the writing is an issue in, you know, seven out of the eight classes that they're doing, that might be the goal that we want to focus on. Yeah. So I think that really helps, um, helps, you know, that team approach to just having that person who can look at it from that bigger lens. The other thing that you mentioned that I just want to point out, cause I, I, really think it's important is you talked about having the student um, be included in the discussions mm -hmm. and also, you know, giving them that, that self-advocacy piece, especially as our students get older, having that self-advocacy for what works for them, I think is so important. My 18 year old, I remember when he first um, entered high school and he had a teacher that would turn off the lights, right? Well, that made my student, him go to sleep. Every time the lights got turned off, it would make him, you know, he couldn't concentrate. He had trouble mm -hmm. and helping him work through that process of just mention it to the teacher. Right. But that was really hard for kids to yeah. do that at first mm -hmm. to stand up and say, Hey, I, I need this, or I need you to put the homework on the board so I can, you know, see it when I copy it, those little things, helping them, um, identify what's important for them, especially when we're talking about executive functioning, you know, what do they need? And then communicating that to others, I think is, is really important. Any ideas on how we can help the student with that self-advocacy piece? What are some things we need to, to do for them <laughs> to help them get there? So there are a couple of things. Um, and I want to clarify, and this is where it gets a little bit muddy because if, if kids are, have executive dysfunction, they are going to want to avoid certain things. And a lot of times we as adults need to move them through that comfort zone. Mm. So a lot of times people are like, make it child-led, let them self-advocate. That doesn't mean let them do whatever they want. There are there's still very clear boundaries and rules and accountability. So we do want to always tie it back to a choice. And you know, we shouldn't necessarily think about it strictly like reward punishment. We want to think about it like we're creating structure to show them that they need to learn how to delay gratification because that is an important life skill. So a lot of times people don't like that. They're like, oh, you're just, you know, trying to punish them into whatever. And, and no, you can't reward or punish a child into skills that they don't have. Uh, so we don't want to just punish them when we're not teaching them the skills in order to be successful. But 
creating some kind of a like a structure like you know you need to if you don't get this work done this is what's going to happen and this is how you're going to be held accountable or if you want to do xyz that is something that you want to do maybe at school there's some kind of preferred thing that everybody gets to do like you got to get your work done before you do the fun thing that's that's how life works so that's an important life skill so having that in place and being aware of the the language that we use, like you're choosing to do this, this was your choice, those kinds of things, so that they're aware that they're like this is this is on them, so that that they're aware that it's kind of you know there's accountability there, and um, you can even just what teachers can do, what people can do while they're actually supporting students. This can be the teachers, the paraprofessionals can actually start to talk through how they think through the steps that they're taking. They can just be a little bit more explicit about that because then they're modeling that thought process. They're showing kids, this is how your brain works. This is how you process through things. Um, and even just including kids in those conversations and just having them be there, listening to what they have to say, you can listen to them without giving them exactly what they want. You can let them, you know, talk. It doesn't mean that you're going to, you know, do exactly what they want, but even just having them involved in the conversations and then even just explaining and being transparent with them about how their brains work and, um, you know, talking them through like, okay, let's, you're, you know, if they're getting stuck at something, it's, you know, think about what you, what you can do next. You're not doing it for them. They're, you're not just sitting there telling them, do this, do this, do this. You're saying, all right, let's think about this. Where were you? Where did you get stuck? What can we do about this? So just modeling that talk throughout that helps them to start understanding how they can be proactive and start to think through those things on their own. And even just have them um, having them be involved in those conversations can be really important there. So yeah, I think that, that that's really nuanced there and it does get misunderstood a lot where, you know, on one end people are like, well, if we you know, let them self-advocate, then we're letting them just do what they want. Well, no, you're not doing that. But then on the other end, people are kind of, um, you know, taking it too far saying it's not child-led if you don't give them what they want. Well, that's not good either. It's very, it's very, the truth is in the middle there. So yeah, um, I think that's super remember. important. Yeah. Super yeah. important. Um, and you know, yeah. I liked what you said, you know, we're not, we're not trying to help them avoid it, <laughs> trying to help them work through these yep. uncomfortable things or work through, you know, these, these skills to mm -hmm. learn them. I think that's really important. I want to um, go back a little bit. Um, we were talking about social skills earlier. One of the things yeah. that I see, and in fact, uh, at the beginning of the year, my daughter came home with a paper for an executive functioning lunch bunch club, right? So once a month, they were going to meet with this. She has some organization issues. They were going to meet with an executive functioning club. And, you know, within this group of students, a lot of the students are there for social skills. Any improvement <laughs> in my own daughter, as far as her organization goes, I'm just wondering, I see if schools do this a lot, right? A social skills group or an executive functioning group, they put together a small group of kids who are working on things. What are your thoughts on that? And, and how can we, you know, should we be doing that? Should the schools be putting together these, you know, adult led, you know, social skills groups to work on these skills? So adult led and supervised are two different things. Obviously, if you're having a group of kids meet and do something, there should be adult supervision. So, so there's that. But the problem when you have a scenario where you have one adult sitting at the table being like, 
here's this structured activity and everyone's going to take a turn. Or what a lot of people will do, it's like, here's a scenario. What should you do in this scenario? And everybody gives their answer. A lot of kids get very good at giving the right answer, but then they mm. have no idea how to actually apply those skills. You're not actually teaching a real skill. So that scenario, it, and, and you even if you go on like Teachers Pay Teachers and you Google social skills, a lot of the worksheets and things like that are set up like that. Who does worksheets in a social situation? No one. <laughs> so it's not real. So what, um, I can't comment on specific groups, but if it's that kind of a setup where it's the adult sitting there teaching in more of an academic format, that typically does not actually give the kids the opportunity to practice those skills that they need to practice. What's a more ideal setup would be if you have, you, you need to kind of pull back the structure a little bit. And again, you're, you're, there's boundaries, there's, there's guidelines and, but it needs to be more of a natural scenario. So if you have a situation where a bunch of kids are getting together and you're doing something, it has to be real life applied, varied, like, I know that this is sometimes kind of hard in the schools, but it's possible that anytime you ha can have some kind of community-based experience or have something that's even in the school that requires them to do some kind of a unique real life skill or some kind of working on a collaborative project together where there's you know, dynamic conversations, that's going to be a lot better than just this class, like a social skills class. Right. Now, um, what what is a little bit, how you kind of want to think about it big picture is where you want to think about if you're going to be doing sort of a therapy situation and where I've seen people do executive functioning therapy in a way that was effective is that there's these components that need to be there where it's, you can use that therapy situation to prime and front load and sort of plan what's going to happen and teach a strategy, but then you have to go and do the thing in the real situation. And so that could be in your group setup thing, or that can be you're preparing for something that's going to happen in that child's day. And you have that situation. Hopefully you have somebody in there who's kind of eyes and ears, um, you know, if they get stuck in that situation. So it could be, you know, maybe there's somebody in a classroom or, um, you know, parents can do this at home as well, where, you know, they're the ones that are there talking their kids through the scenario. But whatever it is, in theory, you want them to actually go out to, to go out and actually try the thing. And then have then another therapy situation could be you can kind of regroup and talk about what happened yeah. and then plan for the future so you're sort of talking through what you would be doing in your head where it's like I'm going to plan I'm going to do it and then I'm going to reevaluate and I'm going to think about how this is going to apply to the future because that's another thing that tends to be hard is that they have a hard time taking stuff from this situation that they did and then applying it to the future and so they mm -hmm. kind of start making the same mistakes over and over again and or they have a hard time thinking about a situation that maybe isn't the same as what they're doing, but might be related where you could kind of infer like, oh, I've done this thing over here. That's kind of like what I'm going to do here. So it's, you know, not that scary because I can use some of the same things in this other situation. I'm trying yeah. to give us.
that that generalization piece, right, is so yeah. important. And in fact, I you had done a podcast not too long ago on generalization. I'll link it in the show notes because I think everyone yeah. should listen to it. Um, but that is something that's so difficult for so many of our students. So putting that um, framework into place within any of those types of, you know, when we've got a group that we're working on, you know, I liked that idea of, you know, prep and plan, and then they're going to go out and do it. And we come back and we reflect, um, but also goes back to the importance of having that team approach, right? Everybody yeah. knows what the student is working on so that it can be, you know, generalized throughout their entire day at school. And even at home, I like that you mentioned parents too, you know, having them that vital part of that team so that the students taking mm-hmm. what they're learning outside of the school and into the community and into the home is so important as well. Um, think a lot of times when we think about executive functioning, it can be really overwhelming, probably yeah. because it's like kind of this umbrella thing, right? So many right. different things can fit underneath, you know, un- underneath it. So if a teacher is, you know, noticing, hey, I've got some kids who are struggling with executive functioning in my class, where just they start? What's something small that they could do to kind of get them on the pathway? I always tell people, don't try and do everything at once. Yeah. Um, it's not going to work. But what's something small that they could do to, to get them started thinking in this direction? So let's see. There's a lot of different places you could go with this. Um, honestly, I mean, the probably the very first step that you'd want to go is, is to learn really fully what executive functioning is. So that would be the first step. But then after that, I would, I think that they want to just see if they can focus on, if they have one part, one situation in their class that's causing them a lot of stress. Uh, Maybe it's one particular student or group of students. Maybe it's one particular time of the day where it seems a little bit chaotic and nobody knows what's going on, whatever it is, I would start there and see if you can nip that in the bud and kind of problem solve that situation. And then you can start to chip away. So I would say kind of put out the, put out the immediate fires that are causing the biggest headache first. And you could even just start this with, again, one student or one group of students. Because when you think about, um, and I tell this to you know, people that I mentor as well, a lot of times they do feel like, oh my gosh, I got all this stuff I've got to do. I'm like, just pick a student, try trial this process with them, and then get yourself to where you feel confident in your skills. And then it becomes easier to apply it to these other students or these other situations. Take yourself through that learning curve yourself. So maybe just even be like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to test it with, you know, student A, B, and C and in these classes. And I'm going to just see um, where they might be struggling with certain steps or routines. And I'm going to come up with a plan for them and I'm going to test it out and see how it, how it goes. And then I can start to work on my own system for that. Yeah. Um, But I really, again, I would say that it would be really good for them to team up with somebody, like team up with another professional who they think might be able to assist them with this because then you can divide and conquer. That would be probably, you know, on my, on my radar as well, if I were wanting to do something like this, because if you're, especially, so if you're a teacher, um, you probably need to need to team up with somebody who might be able to help you. So this could be like, if you're the special ed teacher or the general education teacher, reach out to your speech pathologist, your social worker, your psychologist, work with your paraprofessional, um, work with somebody else so that you can work 
through this together because you're probably going to need to have you know, one person doing one thing and one person doing another thing. You can do it on your own in your classroom, but it would be nice to have another another head to bounce things around. Yeah, I, I love that because the first thing I thought of when you were talking about that was, man, think about all of the executive functioning skills as an adult that you would have to put into place to identify in your classroom, right? You got to identify, you know, the problem. You have to figure out what the goal is. You have to figure out what are the small steps that are going to help me, you know, reach this goal with this student. And I love that advice of pulling in another person because as I mentioned earlier, I mean, even as adults, we're still working on those executive functioning skills, having that other person who can look at it sometimes from an outside view, right? When you get stuck in that same, you know, this every day, this is becoming an issue in my classroom and I'm not sure what to do. Having that other person who can just look at it from a slightly different angle, it might be enough to unlock, you know, some, yeah. some new ideas for you. So I, I love that advice. I think that's something that, that teachers could definitely, definitely put into place. Well, I feel like we've covered a lot <laughs> about executive yeah. functioning, and this was really helpful for me because it is not something that I have a lot of familiarity of uh, other than here's some accommodations we can throw into an IEP. Um, but yeah. I, I think I've learned a lot about, you know, and I got a lot of things going on in my mind now about even my own, my own children and some, some executive functioning things yes. that we need to work on. <laughs> but I think that it's really, really um, a great conversation. If people want to um, connect with you or learn more, where should they go? So I have a couple of different places where I hang out online. The The main place that you want to go where you'll be able to find The majority of my recent content is my podcast. I host a podcast called De Facto Leaders. It is for people who are serving K-12 kids. So clinicians like SLPs, psychologists, social workers, people in education, um, people in in leadership in the school. So just showing them how they can be better leaders and support kids. And then I obviously focus on topics such as these. So if they want to, uh, they can follow that on any of the directories, or I post all of my episodes on my website, which is drkarendudekbrannon.com. And then that's on the blog section of that site. I also have an executive functioning guide where I go through some of the things that we talked about today, the relationship between executive functioning and anxiety, as well as why things like positive reinforcement, you know, talk therapy, all of those things, why we need to think a little bit broader when we're thinking about supporting executive functioning and resilience and mental health. So we can link to that guide as well. But I go through a some recommendations of everyone's role in the process. Mm. So what the teacher can be doing, what the parents can be doing, what the related service providers can be doing. So I go through that in that guide. So the specific link to that is drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash EF schools. I love that. I love that. And we'll link all that um, in the show notes as well for anyone to get to, but I highly recommend checking out uh, Dr. Karen's podcast as well as that guide. For those of you, especially, you know, teams working together, I think is my takeaway um, from here, how important that is that really everybody is on the same page. So thank you again, Dr. Karen. I really appreciate it. Hopefully we'll talk another time soon. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Bye.